Good morning, Rimrock. It sure is good to see all of you guys this morning. Thankful to be here to worship our King because he is always and forever worthy of our praise. So let's sing.
Praise the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Mr. Terry's going to come up and share a few things with us. First off, um, thanks for coming. I want to encourage visitors to fill out those uh, brochures or those, those connection cards in front of you, and there'll be a gift for you out in the lobby. There's going to be a parenting commission. There will be a parenting commission ceremony on October 9th. That'd be next Sunday. If you'd like to participate, please see the information in your bulletin and contact Pastor Boomer. Also, an ISI meal. Don't believe that the international students from South Dakota Mines are a great addition to this church. They are. Wouldn't you like to bless them? And here's a chance. Each Friday night, one church in Rapid provides a meal for over 100 international students at the ISI house. This Friday, October 7th, it's our turn. We want to provide a delicious, abundant meal. If you like to cook, great. If not, just buy something and drop it off at the ISI house Friday or drop it off to Randy and Kelly Shuttle's home, and they'll take it over. We also need three or four people to serve and clean up. You can sign up in two ways. Go to the meal train link on the bulletin, or sign up at the welcome desk there. And I would like to personally invite you all. This is specifically for men. No offense, ladies. But let me tell you some exciting news. The ninth annual Men's Fellowship Day on October 8th, this next Saturday, will be happening. Here's what's going to be going on. We'll be having a speaker by the name of Brian Hurlbut. Brian is a Bible scholar, pastor, husband, father of three girls. Brian's also a graduate of Dallas Theological and Talbot. His primary focus is discipleship, and his favorite pastime is discussing worldviews, theology, with anyone at any time, at any place. He's our third year of having him. He has a challenging uh, message and an encouraging message this year, a series of three talks during the day called A Man of the Kingdom. We'll have great food. Oh, by the way, the last meal of the day, we'll have a special chef preparing marinated and uh, very well-smoked brisket. So uh, you'll have plenty of food all day. Oh, Door prizes, fishing, cornhole, guitar playing. That's just a few of the things. So come and enjoy a day of God-inspired teaching, testimonies, music, and fellowship. There's no charge. Just come and be blessed. Uh, if there's any questions, I'll be back in the foyer afterwards. And uh, that's next Saturday, October 8th, starting at 9 o'clock is registration with coffee and donuts. And oh yeah, if you can't bring them lawn chairs... Because uh, if the weather permitting, we may spend part of the day down in the meadow. God bless, and thanks for your time. So we uh, introduced this song a few weeks ago, but just as a reminder, what they're talking about here is, is a story from Book of Revelation of just the, the magnitude of worship happening at the throne of God and 
And the verse in here, or the bridge in here, if you're not familiar with these words, might feel a little strange to sing, but it says, day and night, night and day, let our incense rise. And all throughout scripture, it talks about our our worship, our prayers, our lives being offered up as a sacrifice of incense to the Lord. And so what it's saying is that day and night, night and day, would all of my life, my worship, everything that I have just be offered up to you as that's why we were created, why we are here is to worship God alone. That's our purpose. And um, so I just encourage you guys as you sing this to keep that in mind of just being before the throne of God and that even as now as we look at our lives, are we day and night, night and day offering up our lives as worship for him? Let me just pray. God, we do just ask that you would be glorified, God, that you would be worshiped, God, as we lift this up. Would you continue to draw out of our lives anything that isn't pleasing and honoring to you and help us to lift up everything to you, God. And all the saints and angels, they bow before your
cry holy 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 god we thank you that you alone are worthy of it all god may we come now and just love and obedience respond to the word god that evan brings to help us to continue to lift up our incense day and night god because you are holy and you're worthy we bow down god we worship you amen amen morning family Man, what a beautiful worship set. Incredible. You know, it's one thing to be able to do this at home while you're listening to Pandora, but man, this is why Sunday mornings exist for me, to come to a place full of other people lifting God's name high. There's just something about the ambiance and the culture of a place like this that does so much for me internally and personally. So in the last half an hour, 45 minutes that I've been here, people keep asking me, man, what are you doing here? <laughs> it's like, well, I thought I would be more received by people that I consider family. But man, you got to come home sometimes. There's few places that feel as much as home as this place does, right? I was brought here when I was seven years old, and I spent endless time in this place with people like you. And as I look around, man, you guys are my family. My parents... My brothers, my sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, 
There's just few places where I feel so connected and loved like I do with Rimrock. And I say that as an intro, yes, but also to encourage you guys that are bringing your kids to church, there's so much more value that will happen in their minds and their lives than you have any idea. Right? As they grow up, as they turn 40 and they start looking back at the benefits of what they received, this will be a crucial piece of that. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Evan. I'm the pastor of our downtown campus. We got a two-campus church. You guys know that? Hopefully that's being made obvious to you all. We got one here and then one in downtown Rapid City. And we operate out of the concept of one church, two campuses or two communities. And you're going to see over and over over the next few months and hopefully years to come ways that we are going to be casting visions for us to operate together as a church. Not separate campuses, but as a church in order to bring God's glory. So, but this morning, Ben and I switched spots, so that way I get a chance to come home, he gets a chance to make himself known down there, and we'll hop into Mark 12. Now, before we do that, every time, I have to pray. This is not my word, this is God's word, right? I am simply a messenger, a very broken messenger, and so I got to cry out to God to get his presence. Spirit, right now, I invite you into my mind, into my emotions, into my words, Bring your truth right now. Fight against the darkness that is all around us. Give us light. Amen. All right. So like I mentioned, Mark 12. Now, I'm a teacher. I was trained to be a middle school teacher. You guys aren't that different than middle schoolers. (laughs) I know that. Trust me, even this far away, I can see your eyes glaze over. So I'll try to do things to keep you least distracted from zoning out. But... As a teacher, a Bible teacher, my goal is not to tell you stories about my own life, but to give you principles of a passage so that way you can go back and study it on your own. If you want to learn the Bible, you got to get in there on your own. So if you have a Bible, open it up. If you have an app, open it up. The verses will be behind me, but your recollection and remembrance of those, it's like 3%. But if it's in front of you, it's more like 10 to 15%. I was a reading teacher. So please engage yourself now so that way you can benefit. So in the beginning of Mark 12, we see a parable. Now, it's been a while since we've looked at a parable in the book of Mark. So I want to give you a quick reminder of what they are. According to Webster's Dictionary, it is defined as a usually short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. Now, most of us have heard the tortoise and the hare, right, or the good Samaritan. The beauty of parables is that they are quite memorable because they paint a simple picture of some kind of event, the slow-moving but persistent turtle, right? Or a man who had been robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. But behind each of these fictitious short stories are deeper truths that can relate directly to our lives. Now, I found out it's really important, that a really important way to understand the basic principles buried within a parable is knowing the context in which they are being told. Remember that this is a story being given to a specific audience to teach them a specific lesson. And lessons are best learned in the context of an applicable experience or conversation. So for the most part, when Jesus gives a parable, it is directly relating to the conversation that he is in the middle of having. So to have a good idea of the premise of the lesson, it's really helpful to read the passage or two before the parable itself. So I'll do that for you. Mark eleven twenty-seven and following. 
Again, they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. As he was speaking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you what authority I, by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? Answer me. They argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But, we, but shall we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Then check out verse 1 of 12. Then he began to speak to them in a parable. You see that connection? Then. So he didn't directly tell them, but he's like, you know what? I can't just leave you hanging by what authority. Let me tell you this story. So to help us figure out what they're talking about, what is the context, what is the topic that Jesus and the religious leaders are discussing? Authority. Right? Why does Jesus have the right to teach in the way that he's teaching and perform the miracles that he is performing? Who has put him in this position of power? Now, instead of giving them that one-word answer, God or my Father, he tells them a short story with various layers of meaning to get their minds rolling down a certain path. So let's read what he tells them in this story. Chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they, the Pharisees, scribes, realized that he had told this parable against him, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. The beauty of a parable is that the concepts that it uses directly connect the audience with something that they can relate with. And when it comes to wine and vineyards, the Jews had a really strong connection. According to the Bible, after the flood, Noah planted the first vineyard. The land of Canaan is thought to be one of the earliest countries to enjoy wine. Do you guys remember what Joshua and the other spies carried back to Moses and the Israelites? A giant cluster of grapes. By the first century AD, the Romans had grabbed a hold of the winemaking industry, which allowed it to be spread through the entire Roman Empire. So when Jesus tells about a man planting a vineyard and creating the proper things needed for it to prosper, his audience fully understands what he is saying. For us in 21st century America, it would be as if Jesus said a man started a business. He set up everything it needed to operate legally. He created a website. He made all sorts of connections with various supporters. And then he hired various people to run it so that way he could do other things. 
I imagine that makes fairly good sense to us. Now, in verse 1, Jesus establishes, in my opinion, the most important truth in this entire lesson. Who is ultimately in charge? So I'm going to be walking you through this as we go. Verse 1, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. So who's in charge? The tenants that he left behind or the owner that built it all? Pretty simple answer, right? I believe it's always important to ask this question, though. Why is he? the owner, the one who should have the highest level of authority. Be thinking through that. Why should the owner be the one that's put into the position of ultimate decision? It's because of what he's done. He is the one who created the vineyard and everything in it that allows it to function. Without him, nothing would exist. Without him, there would be no grapes, there would be no form of protection, and no ability to turn the grapes into wine. He is the reason that all that is there exists. Let's start applying this. Now, the first step for me in applying it is looking at how, what it means or how it applies to the original audience, the ones that Jesus is speaking with, the first century Jewish people. For them, they were close descendants of everything that we read about in the Old Testament, which means we have to go there to understand what they are thinking. And I hope you guys like the Old Testament. For whatever reason, it is my favorite part of the Bible. Now, as I've been reading and meditating on this parable, I think it's safe to say that the vineyard that the man planted could be analogous to the entire nation of Israel. As with any group of people or nation, it starts with one man or a seed. Right? For Israel, it was Abraham. Before God stepped into Abraham's life, he and his wife, they were childless. But because of God, Abraham's family grew into a massive nation. Genesis 17, no, Genesis 22, 17, after Isaac and the sacrifice. I will indeed bless you, God talking to Abraham, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. But as I'm sure we all know, this nation that he's describing, it became a nation of slaves, until God once again stepped in and freed them from Pharaoh's oppressive hand. Exodus 19. Now therefore, speaking to Moses, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to Israel. But even though they were free, right, with the crossing of the Red Sea, they were simply a wandering nation without a land in which they could grow and prosper until God gave them the promised land, right? The land of Canaan. Check out Joshua 1. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Speaking of Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it. And I hope you're seeing this pattern. Abraham had nothing. The Israelites were in bondage. Israel had no home. 
until God stepped in. And if you read through the Old Testament, there is no way to not attribute everything that the Israel nation has to God's direct provision. Over and over, God sets them up with incredible opportunities that they did nothing to create or even deserve. Now let's take this application one step closer to home by zooming out to 30,000 feet. Right? That's logical. Right? Let's focus in on us by getting a bird's eye view. You'll see what I'm saying. Now, if you spend any time at all looking at the specific ways that our planet is set up, for me, it has become undeniable that it was intentionally built to house life. Let me give you a few examples. The Earth is approximately 93 million miles away from the sun. Ken, you can put up that first one. Any thoughts on what would happen if the Earth was closer like Venus or further away like Mars? On Venus, the average temperature is 900 degrees. On Mars, it is negative 81, neither of which is inhabitable. But based on the precise place where our planet was put, what exists? Us. Let me give you another one. The tilt of the Earth. You can go to the next one. Anyone know the number off the top of their head, the angle at which the Earth is set? 23.5. Surely somebody said that, right? You guys did not fail seventh grade science. Come on. Because it was set at that precise angle, we have moderate temperatures all year around that allows life to exist. The tilt of the planet, that it also creates seasons. And what do seasons do? They allow plants to produce fruit, which then gives us food to give us life. Let me give you one more. The amount of water on the planet. Anybody know that percentage? 70%. Because of the amount of water, condensation is constantly forming in the atmosphere, which then creates clouds, which then produces water to fall. Water that we drink, water that brings life. The condensation also creates a greenhouse effect, which allows planets to remain, which allows our planet to remain at the appropriate temperature for us to live. And these are just a few examples of how precisely our planet has been designed. These are so easy to take for granted because they are normal to us. But what other planet has these? Not a single one that we've ever discovered. Now, if the astronomical isn't interesting to you, check yourself out. The closer you look at life here, like things like our bodies, the stronger and stronger the evidence becomes that life exists because an all-powerful creator wanted it to. And just like the Israelites with their nation, what did we do to establish any of this? Nothing. What did you do today to cause the sun to rise? To put blood in your veins and oxygen in your lungs. Apart from 30 seconds of fun, what did you do to create the incredible children that you have that bring you so much joy? Right? The breakfast that you enjoyed this morning, the lunch that you devoured this afternoon, apart from going to the grocery store or ordering it from a waiter, what did you do to create that? Nothing. There are so many good things in our reality, things that allow our lives to exist, and we have done nothing to bring them about. They are all gifts from God. A psalmist puts it this way in Psalms 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. We sang that as, I sung that as a kid, and I just lost all sorts of mean, sense of what it actually meant. But this today was made by God. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In the same way that God established Israel as a nation, he established humanity as a people. 
In the same way that he sets up everything that they needed to grow and prosper, he's done the same for each of us individually and collectively. This is why God is the ultimate form of authority. Because without him, there would be nothing. And because of them, we have everything we need. But the parable doesn't stop there, does it? Actually, we're just getting started. So Jesus must have another point to make. Let's look at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. Now, it appears that the owner of the vineyard didn't create it and hand it off to the tenants for them to simply do whatever they wanted to do. Rather, he did all that hard work and brought them in so that way they could accomplish specific things. It states that when the season began, right, which is most likely referring to harvest, which is the main reason why vineyards exist. After the vines produce grapes, the grapes can be picked and then be used to make wine. The wine would then be sold to the consumer for profit. Because Jesus adds this to his parables, it, his parable, it means that God didn't create us to sim- and Israel and our sustainable world for us to simply enjoy and do whatever we want. Rather, he gave it to us with a responsibility to accomplish specific things. Right, with Israel, in each of the passages that we just looked at, there is always a clause attached to it. Some lead into it, some follow it. Um, with Abraham, because you obeyed my voice. With Moses and the Israelites, if you obey my voice and keep my commandments. With Joshua, only be strong and courageous, being careful to act in accordance with my law. Over and over, we see this with the nation of Israel. Everything good comes from God, but ultimately, it, all still, it is all still his which means that he has specific plans for how it should be used. This is a major reason why he gave the law to the Israelites. As an all-knowing creator, he knows exactly what needs to be done for this world to accomplish his main, main purpose. You may be wondering right now, all right, what is that? In a couple weeks, you get the opportunity of being walked through the greatest commandments by Nick. See, at the end of chapter 12. They are to love God and to love others. The main reason why we and everything else exist is so that way we can elevate God as our ultimate form of authority and then humbly serve those around us. Vines are planted to bear fruit and we are created to love God and others. When the vines bear fruit, a beautiful nectar can be made. And when we love God and others, we can operate in perfect harmony. And I'm hoping you're seeing the dual purposes that are there when we are accomplishing how we are, li- how we are designed to live. The first one, God, the one who's in charge of it all, he is put into his proper place. Like I already described to you, that makes total logical sense to me. But it doesn't stop there. After we do that, right, we also reap the benefits in our own lives and the world around us. Right? When things roll out the way that they were intended to roll out. Because God is such a gracious God, this is why he gave us the law. So that we, yes, you and me, we can understand practically how to accomplish the purposes that he made us to accomplish and then harvest a good life by doing it. Believe it or not, a huge chunk of the Old Testament law still has direct application to us today in modern day America. Yes, we've been saved by grace and grace alone, but the law exists to show us how to live. You don't believe me? Read the Ten Commandments. Tell me any of those that don't make sense for you now. Out of the Ten Commandments, every other commandment flows. 
What's even more incredible, though, is that our creator didn't only give us a list of important standards to live by. What else did he give us? The Spirit. For those of us that have cried out to him for salvation, we have been given a guide. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, the Spirit is continually speaking truth into your life. The stirring of your emotions, right? The random thoughts that pop into your mind, the people that speak timely wisdom into your life. I believe that so, so often God has given us the direction that we need so that way we can accomplish the purposes that he created for you to accomplish. All that exists is from God and is here for specific reasons. So that way we can accomplish specific purposes that he has designed ahead of time to be our way of life. Those aren't my words. Paul, Ephesians 2. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. But once again, the parable's not over, right? We're only on verse 2. So we got to keep reading. So I'll start with verse 2 again. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. If you read through First and Second Kings, right, hopefully you guys have done that at least once. Right, it just chronicles Israel's history. If you read through it, you'll get to discover over 300 years of Israelite history. Starting with Solomon, it chronicles 40 different kings of Israel. Some of them, like Josiah, they strive to follow God's law and lead the nation in the direction that they were created to. Sadly, though, many, many other kings don't do this. Instead, kings like Jeroboam turn to the nations around them to give them direction on how to live, and then they elevate other gods to that position of authority. When this happens, chaos always enters the scene. Sometimes slowly, a lot of other times immediately. Instead of Israel living as a light in the midst of a dark world, the way that their creator designed them to, they look like every other nation. Greed, debauchery, violence, and sexual perversity are a normal part of their culture. At this point, God had a choice. Do I remove them from the positions of responsibility that I gave to them because they chose to reject me, or do I encourage them to turn back to me? Just like we see in the parable and in every other sunrise, God chooses to show mercy. So he sends prophets, messengers that have specific things to say to the kings and the people alike. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah. Right? I'm sure you've heard these names. For over 300 years, yeah, you heard me right, 300 years, God lovingly and patiently sends his ambassadors into a wicked nation to plead to them to turn back to him, to the one who had established them as a powerful and prosperous nation. But just like we see in the parables, for the most part, the prophets and the words that they're speaking from God, they fall on deaf ears, or a better term, hard hearts, and they reject them. Some of these men, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, they are imprisoned, beaten, and potentially even killed by the men that they were sent to save. But like Jesus tells us in the parable, 
God's mercy and love, it doesn't end there, does it? Look at verses six through eight. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to him saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 400 years after the last recorded prophet, God sends Jesus, his son, into the world with the hopes that they will finally come to their senses and recognize their position in the universe and then elevate God to where he belongs. As we've been seeing in Mark, Jesus didn't come just to die on the cross. Feel free to come and talk to me about this, argue with me about it, but he did far more than to do, he came to do far more than just that. He came to demonstrate his power and his authority first. Miracle after miracle of the light triumphing over the darkness. Powerful teaching after powerful teaching showing people universal truth. In the same way that the son of the owner of the vineyard showed the tenants who he was, Jesus did it as well. He proved his position in the universe in undeniable ways. But due to the hardness of their hearts, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they puffed up their chest and had him nailed to a cross. Now because people, what I'm learning, are pretty much the same across the millennia, regardless of what culture or country you grow up in, we, you and me, we often, really daily, we reject God's plans for our lives and we live out of the desires and agendas that we create. But fortunately, in the same way that we are like Israel, God treated us and treats us in similar ways that he treated them. Instead of wiping us off the face of the earth, or even worse, leaving us to our own vices, God is continually sending messages into your lives. They come through our conscience. You know that deep feeling in your gut? You can't get rid of it. tells you that this is wrong also comes through our logic, the trains of thought that show you that this choice, it will not end well. God also sends his messages of redirection and life through others, the people that speak difficult but powerful words into your life, ones that have the ability to realign your perception to the, of the world back to what is right. He also speaks through his word, the Bible. When you read verses or you hear verses sung, like in the songs that we were singing, that to speak directly to your mind, to your heart, this is God, the creator of everything, trying to speak to you to show you what is true. But just like the people in ancient Israel, right, and in first century Rome, our hearts are so often hardened to God's gentle and persistent prodding. Instead of recognizing God's reality and the amount of wisdom and power that he has, we see that we are in charge of our lives, which we are. And then we believe that we know what is best, which we don't. Out of that faulty perspective, we then reject God and his plans and charge headlong down whatever path we believe is right. But once again, we're still not done with the parable, right? So we got to get back to it. Verse 9, let's see what happens. See how it ends. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. It's a heck of a statement, isn't it? This is one that you give to a guest pastor. <laughs> now, personally, I love the logic and the way that Jesus ends this. 
based on everything that the tenants have done, what are the natural consequences of their choices? Because they believe that they were in charge and tried to operate accordingly, they will be removed from this beautiful place that they did nothing to create. Imagine what you, as a business owner, would do if your employees threw a coup d'etat, right? They wanted to replace you and take full control over everything that you had created. Now, I know the language in verse 9 is harsh, but hyperism is often used in literature to just prove a point, right? I believe that Jesus may be speaking this way to show them the drastic consequences that may lie ahead for them. But I also believe that this harsh language does not describe, describe God's view towards them or us when we reject his authority in our lives. I think that Jesus is wanting them to understand the natural consequences that they will face when they elevate themselves far higher than they should. They will be brought low by the natural cause and effect of their choices. Let me explain to you where I get this from. By looking at what we see in Israel back in 586 BC and in 67 AD, for me it shows that God is not a cruel God, one that's sitting in heaven wringing his hands, laughing maliciously as he punishes his wicked people. Rather, I believe he is allowing them to receive the natural consequences of the choices that they made to reject him. In the 6th century BC, God removes his protection from Israel and he removes his protection from Israel and then what happens? Babylon marches in, takes over like they did for dozens and dozens of other countries that surround Israel. In 67 AD, there's a Jewish insurrection against Rome and God then allows the Romans to do what they do, squelch rebellions. In this, the temple was utterly destroyed. For me, this is not a vicious God throwing hot coals at an unsuspecting people. Rather, it is a loving God allowing people to experience what they are choosing to experience, the byproduct of choices to elevate themselves into positions of authority. And we see this in our own lives too. For those of us that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, we have been fully atoned of every wrong that we will ever do. As long as we hang on to that faith in Jesus, we will never be separated from our Creator. But when we choose to live according to our own law or that of our culture, instead of the maker of heaven and earth, when we choose to follow our own feelings and the guidance of those around us, instead of that small, still voice of the Spirit, then God allows us to experience the natural cause and effect of our own choices. Let me give you a few hypotheticals. Working too much, it directly impacts one's time. And then, consequently, the relationships with their family. Drinking too much alcohol negatively impacts a person in so many ways, so therefore, their life shows that negative impact. When a married person flirts with their coworker, it naturally creates an emotional divide between them and their spouse, which then can lead to an affair, which will always bring destruction. And I hope you're getting an idea of what I'm presenting. If I had more time, I'd gladly give you examples from my own life, times where I have reaped the natural negative consequences of my own stupidity. When we choose to reject God's authority over our lives and then place ourselves onto the throne, we will naturally make selfish choices, which will naturally lead to pain and loss, which out of his love for us, God then allows us to experience. 
Now, this parable is not as lighthearted and easy as a tortoise in the hare, is it? But as always, but as he always does, Jesus is delivering the truths that we need to hear. When we elevate ourselves to the position of king or queen, our perspectives get skewed and our selfish tendencies take over. And from my personal experience, selfishness always leads to heartache. But what I love, what I've been saying, is that the parable is not over. Jesus does not leave his audience in hopelessness. Remember who he's talking to. Pharisees, the scribes, it's so easy to be like, yeah, they were going down that road. Jesus just lets them know and walks away. Look how he ends it. Verses 10 and 11. Have you not read this? this? Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. This comes from Psalms 118. Let's read the whole thing. I thank you, he's talking to God, that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. We beseech you, O Lord. You hearing this cry? O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Whenever an author or whenever an individual in the Bible makes a quote of a scripture, the Pharisees knew this so well. So they would have been thinking this entire passage. So Jesus is not saying, look, I am the cornerstone. You're rejecting me. I will be elevated. Yes, that's part of it. But he's just like, Think about the rest of this. Think about the opportunity you still have to be a part of what God is going to do through me. And I hope you're starting to see this. What's beautiful, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, see I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever, technically that should be whomever as an English teacher, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Pharisees, scribes, Christians that believe in Jesus but then turn to their own vices. Whoever believes in him, whoever turns to him, will not be put to shame. And I hope you're starting to see the overall premise, the lesson that Jesus is trying to give to these people. I believe he wants them to know that if they turn back to God, they recognize their faulty views of the world and themselves and then humble themselves back to their proper position in the universe, right? if they do that, they will understand that they are a people who has been given so much, but yet they deserve nothing. But the reason why they have it is because of a gracious and benevolent creator. Man, I'm completely out of time, but I hate to just end conceptually. And so we have the opportunity, as we do each month, to take communion. So if the gentlemen, the individuals that are passing out, if you wouldn't mind coming up, what I would like us to do with this is to meditate on the idea of gratitude. As I've been thinking through this, one of, if not the best way to fight against selfish tendencies and elevating ourselves to improper positions 
is by hanging on to a proper perspective. And so often that comes if we're willing to have gratitude. When you take time to look at the beautiful things in your life and then trace them back to their origin, it has the ability to give you a perspective on yourself and the incredible world that surrounds you. I'm finding that gratitude can realign my perception of reality like few other things can. So as the musicians start to just play some music and they pass these out, what I challenge you to do as you hold the cup and the bread, they're simply symbolic of Jesus, right? Of the body that he gave and the blood that he gave for you. Meditate on how good your life is and trace it back to why. Ask yourself, why do you have what you have? Why do you have the body you have? Why do you have the family you have? Why do you live in the beautiful black hills as the colors change? Spend this time realigning your perception looking at the reality of what we have. And then whenever you like, just take the communion on your own. sings 
Praise the Lord. Thanks so much for being here this week, you guys. We'll see you next week.